So today's lesson text comes from the book of Samuel, the entire fourth chapter. And today I will be reading in the old version. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched besides Ebenezer and the Philistines pitched at Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore, why has the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh to us, and when it comes among us, it may save us out of the hands of our enemies. So the people went to Shiloh, that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, which dwells between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang aloud. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What means this noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And then they understood the ark of the Lord was come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there has not been such a thing up till now. Woe to us, for who shall deliver us from the hands of, of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues and in the wilderness. Now be strong and quit yourselves like men, O you Philistines, that you, you not be slaves to the Hebrews that they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten. And Israel fled every man to his tent, and there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel thirty thousand men. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. And then there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army, and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head. And when he came, lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What means this noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety and eight years old, and his eyes were dim that he couldn't see. And the man said to Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And Eli said, What is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel fled before the Philistines, and there was also a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of the Lord is taken. And it came to pass when the man made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck broke and he died for he was an old man and heavy 
Eli had judged Israel 40 years. And what's worse, his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child, near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pangs were come upon her. And about the time of the mother's death, the woman stood by her and said to her, Fear not, you have borne a son. But the mother answered not, neither did she regard the child. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God is taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be in honor and a glory to you. Amen. So today's reading is a tough one. Samuel's warning to Eli comes home to roost. A nation is defeated, a family is broken. But, as we shall see in the coming weeks, God will soon work wonders. And in a foretelling of Christ's cross, This defeat will be reversed. The Lord will restore Israel, but more than a restoration, Israel shall emerge from this trial a stronger people. So in a way, this will prefigure the victory of Easter that required a sealed tomb to get there. Now there was a lot wrong going into this story, if you've been following at home, reading chapters 1 through 4. The religious leaders, especially Eli, were weak. And as we can see from today's story, the people trusted force of arms above much else. In fact, God's only even brought into this story to strengthen their arms. They appeal to swords, it doesn't work, so they throw God on top of swords. And I think that's the first takeaway, is that whenever we try to add God on top of our plans, not only does it never work, it will always backfire. Because if you look, I think it was about verse 5, see how the Philistines muster themselves. They recognize God's power and they hear that tumult and it turns up their ears. The Philistines say to themselves, they're bringing in the God that defeated Pharaoh. They don't doubt any of the wonders God had worked among Israel. And they even say it as best as their little pagan minds can think it, where they say, what gods are over in that tent? But the thing is, it will always go the same for us when we evoke God into our challenges. The powers of oppression, the powers of the devil, Satan, whatever you want to call him, and all the cultural Philistines of today, if they hear the shout that God is in our camp, there is no way to motivate their resistance better than to bring God against them. The fear of the Philistines, notice it never produces a godly faith. They never get down and pray, oh, Lord of Israel, deliver us. No, it turns them to fighting, and the Philistines give their reason why. They say, do we want to surrender? Do we want to be beaten by the the Hebrews and turned into slaves like we've made the Hebrews for all these years? Because God's enemies always act in two ways. They do evil and oppress, and they assume that whenever God is invoked, he will always be a tyrant over them. 
now. In Christ, the prince of the world is defeated, and I want to make that clear. The devil and whatever powers are out there are in tactical retreat. All I am saying is the mention of God is going to dig them in. The cornered dog bites. And I will tell you that normally, that is no issue whatsoever. We sang today in our opening hymn, One quiet little word shall fell him. When God is on our side, it is very easy to smite the devil. You never need fear any power, principality, any of it. The rage of the Philistines can easily be overturned. But the problem is, if God is with you. See, the Israelites realize in today's reading, the problem is God was not with them. It says there, right there in verse 3, they say, well, why did we lose? Why did the Lord not go out with our armies? And they make a further mistake that they never go get God on their side. We learn in chapter 7 that they even have idols that they've been using. But the real thing is, is they never go to God and say, hey, Lord, why did we get kicked in the pants? Why did you not go out with our armies? They never do any of that. They never pray. No, they just try to baptize their own intentions. And what happened was they got in a God-sized fight without God-sized power. Now you may be saying, hey, Paul, how do you know that? Well, look at verses 3 through 5. Israel never seeks the Lord. They don't ask if anything is wrong on their end. There's no question of sin or just waiting on the Lord's timing, which will get Saul in trouble later on. The elders never even send anyone to ask the boy Samuel, who we've been looking at all these years. Verse 1 says, his word has gone out to all of Israel. They had heard what he had warned Eli. And they go and get Eli's two sons that Samuel had said it would not go good for. So they fall into a trap. And the reason this is relevant for today is this is one we still stumble into. Because see, inside the ark, way back in, I think it's Numbers, there's a jar of manna. Wonderful stuff. It even means in Hebrew, what is it? It's God's food of the angels, and it's what he gave the Israelite ancestors to eat when they were in the desert. But it had a wonderful feature that if you ever gathered it and hoarded it, it would rot the next day. Because God intended to teach his people in the wilderness that every single day they must come and get that new grace. Just as the Son would teach us later to pray, give us this day our daily bread. But so that ark that had that manna and that lesson inside it, the Israelites go and grab that, but they don't seek the Lord on that day. And that's the trap. Israel instead chose to rest on what God already had done. But the manna of yesterday, it was rotten. Now that does not degrade the ark or the tabernacle. Those were meant to stand for a continuing presence of God. But see, here in this story of Samuel, God is doing a new thing. He is creating a new nation. If there was any time they needed to come to him and say, Hey, Lord, are we right? It was now. And they needed to renew that connection to God, a renewed consecration. But when the battle was lost, they just looked around and said, Ichabod, no glory. And that's my second idea for you today. As we look around our church, and if you listen deep enough, and not just this congregation, but all of them, I'm not picking on you guys today, there is a whisper in American Christianity 
of Ichabod. The church, Christian workers, Sunday school teachers, they find precious little success. Whispers of Ichabod. And what's worse, we as a church, we often invoke God. But if he is not with us, then all we have done is stirred up the opposition. Many times we wonder why that is. Well, I would submit to you that there are many times, like Israel, instead of getting aligned with God, seeking his face, we simply reach for our ark. We reach for what God did to lend us strength. We try to recapture what's been done, get back that old religion feeling. You've probably felt that yourself. Now, at the start of your Christian walk, it may have felt great, a liberation that you believed. God got you out of Egypt. Or as a child, you just followed your father as he made his journey. But here we are five, ten, or thirty years later, and progress is stalled. You find yourselves wandering around the wilderness, and we find many times the church still fails against the same sins, the same struggles go badly, and we ask, how do we solve this? By nostalgia? No. We must seek the presence and the word of the Lord. You see, we Christians, we have far more access to God than any Israelite ever did. Instead of a prophet, instead of Samuel, we have the privilege to speak to the very word of God himself. Now, the Bible is God's instruction book, sure and firm. It will teach you all you ever need to know, but it will tell you what you need to know is constantly that we have the privilege and the duty to go straight to God. He is with us. Every day he gives himself up. Every day we can commune and feast on that heavenly daily bread. The Israelites ask, can God spread a table in the wilderness? But we have to ask, is that our experience? What stops us? It's the question in verse 3. It's the mention of Ichabod. Why is God not with us? Have we not searched? Have we not looked? But instead of facing that issue, we often go for anything else. And even here, you can go for Bibles, you can go for arcs, you can go for religion, you can go for famous ministers. We will even go to the very will of God to say why he is silent. And my friends know it's always Philistine to say God wills bondage. Again and again, the promise the Father promises his spirit and love. If you never have, you could today very easily enter his presence and rest. The blood of Christ has torn the veil. We lie to ourselves and say God may not be available and he's turned his face away because he's got some bigger plan or something. But the Bible is very clear he only ever turns his faith away for sin and unbelief. He states therein in his word many times, and we can debate it if we like, because I like religious debates, that his will is for all to come to him. If you say, Lord, come to me, reveal your plans, you stand not only on the word, but on the will of God. Just one thing then remains. Israel, in today's story, was trying to use the ark to have God do what they want. The ark was intended to make people holy, given completely to God. But how often do we approach God 
with any intention of being in that mode. I mean, we gave ourselves once, right? We said a sinner's prayer. We, we got washed in the blood. We got out of Egypt. But how many of us have really made the surrender to get across the Jordan into his sacred rest? Because see, seeing the ark alone without consecration, without seeking God, it's powerless. Worse, it stirs up opposition even stronger than before. And so it will always go for a church or a believer who does not every day give themselves to the Lord. Sometimes we even think God asking us to surrender our lives to him is an aim to harm us. That we, when we surrender, somehow Pharaoh's plagues will fall upon us. My hope for everyone here is that they dedicate their life to the Lord. And I unfortunately wrote this sermon a little bit too early because I have a slight witness to give you all today. You may perhaps be saying to yourselves, I can never have this presence of God. I can't get anywhere close to it. And you hear these calls that you must give Jesus your life and you sit there and you you try to think of it and you just can't get to it. Well, my friends, I have been a Christian for a very long time. This is not a conversion story. This one goes out to the converted. I was broken in prayer this week. I told the Lord I cannot love you the way I should and I cannot get anywhere near tossing all this sin and junk aside. And in my prayer, I found myself completely defeated, laying on the floor, and I had to tell God, you know what? I cannot love you. I cannot approach. I cannot give my life to you. And if you search me down, Lord, you know deep down inside my Calvinist veins, I am completely your enemy. Now, how many of you have ever come to the Lord and given him that? But when I realized that was what God was asking, when he was asking me to give my life to him, he wasn't asking to take away my winnings, to take away my blessings. He was asking to take away my junk, the root of sin, all the losing, all the cars that never run, all the getting mad at everybody, all the unbelief. That's what Jesus is asking you for. He is taking on the curse. So no matter what damnation you are under, that is what he is asking for you to put upon him. Because it said, cursed is he who hangs upon the tree. So if you are sitting there and you are wondering, can I really give my life to Christ? Can I really make that sacrifice? Think of what it is. Now I will tell you that that is blessed and wonderful news to me, but it was anything but blessed and wonderful as I worked through it. It felt like 100% total rejection. And that was what Christ takes. We far too often make conversion. The initial freedom from sin, yes, now you you have your fire insurance, it's very good, yay. We often make that the important bit. But my friends, Christ is offering God's rest. He has brought Israel into the promised land. And as we continue to read the book of Samuel, he is building them up to a nation under their King David, which prefigures the king of all the universe, Jesus Christ himself. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that the spirit of Ichabod would be banished from us. We pray for you to take these burdens and these loads and throw them into the sea. Lord, my special prayer here is for all those who have never considered dedicating their lives to you. 
who think at that and think that's the last thing I want. Lord, I pray that you would break hearts so you could build them up, so your love and your glory may be known. Father, we, we have cheapened your love by throwing it on top of everything, but you have made it oh so precious in the blood of your Son. Teach us that we are paid at a price and that we are adopted into your family. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.